thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. It's an awful feeling, isn't it? When you get caught out in a lie, your stomach kind of drops through the floor. Uh, growing up, my family was relatively messy. You might have heard about this before. I've got an, or complicated, not just messy. Uh, I've got an older half-sister who grew up with my grandmother in Auckland, and I've got a younger brother who mostly grew up with my mother in Christchurch, and I lived in Blenheim with my dad and my stepmom. Uh, but for a time, my younger brother lived with us. He was about five and I was ten. Uh, and as we sat at the dinner table one night, we got caught in a deception. He dropped us right in it. As we were sitting there, he spoke up and he said, Hey, Dad, we didn't go to the shop and buy any lollies this morning, thinking that he was a genius who was covering up our master plan to buy lollies that were unauthorized. The game was up, and I knew it right at that moment, as soon as he opened his mouth, that we were busted. My clever attempts at deception to conceal the truth had just unraveled thanks to my younger accomplice. Today, Abram, later named Abraham, that hero of the faith, will be caught like I was at the dinner table, staring like a cat in headlights as a deception unraveled before me. A deception is going to unravel before him, and it's much more serious than the unauthorized purchase of lollies at the shop. We're going to spend the first part of our time together looking at what motivated Abram, his fear in verses 10 to 12. And then we'll consider the grave impact of Abram's deception in verses 13 to 16. And finally, we're going to see God's faithfulness shining through in this really messy situation. Why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you that you speak to us by your word. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts. Lord, as we explore the ideas of fear and faith, would you be gentle to us? Would you be the kind and loving Father that we know you are as you convict us of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment, so that we could be transformed to be more like Jesus? We pray, Lord, that our fears would give way to faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we, we met Abram and we saw the wonderful promise that God had made to him. God would go and take childless Abram and make him into a great nation. He would give him a name that would be known and revered as people all over the world heard about him. He would bless any, God would bless anyone who blessed Abram, and he would curse anybody who cursed him. Abram was promised that all of the people of the earth would be blessed through him, which we heard about this morning, ultimately in the Lord Jesus, one of his descendants. Abram was obedient to the call of God as he believed the, bless, uh, the promise that he'd been given. And so what he did is he left his country, his people, and his father's house to go to the place that God would show him, a new land. He took that tangible step of faith and left his home in Haran, setting off for Canaan instead. 
Once he got down there, he settled in a place called the Negev, a desert, until we see in verse 10, famine strikes the land. And so to preserve his people, Abram packs up again and they move off to Egypt. They move down to where the Nile Delta guarantees a steady supply of food no matter what's going on anywhere else in the region, even in a time of famine. And even though he's making this move for survival, Abram harbors a deep fear that the Egyptians will kill him, verse 12 tells us, and take his wife Sarai, verse 11. Now we heard earlier as well, Abram was 75 when he left Haran. They aren't young people, Abram and Sarai. We think she's about 10 years younger than him. Now some of us will be really encouraged this morning to hear that at 65 she was still considered to be an exceptionally beautiful woman. It's interesting when you read the commentaries about the aging process of the patriarchs. They lived a whole lot longer than we do, and their whole lifespans were prolonged. It wasn't just that they lived on into old age, they aged differently to us. Uh, Derek Kidner explains, which is helpful for us this morning, I think. Their continued vigor shows that this was no mere postponement of death, but a spreading out of the whole lifespan, the whole life process. E.g., Abraham at, say, 110 in chapter 22 has the vitality of a man at most 70. Sarai's 60s, therefore, would presumably correspond with our 30s or 40s. Now, regardless of that, wise men in the church all agree that our wives are more beautiful as they age, don't we, gentlemen? Lots of nodding, please. Yeah, I've only got two chocolates, so you're on your own. As he makes this move, Abram's fear rises up. It rises up because he is now an obstacle. His life is at risk. As a husband, he stands in the way of an Egyptian who sees and wants Sarai for himself because of her beauty. And he is terrified of dying despite the promise of God to give him a future and a name and to bless him and to protect him and curse those who will curse him. Despite the promise of God, his fear rises up. Sometimes our fear rises up too, doesn't it? To say it's not something I think of often at 37, but like Abram, some of us are afraid of death. I expect that as your age starts to hit the higher numbers, 70, 80, or 90, the reality that death contains a lot of unknowns gets a lot more real, doesn't it? Or maybe a diagnosis for illness comes and we start to think about life and death in a different way. Death starts to loom before us and we are afraid of that step of the unknown. Or some of us fear financial difficulty. Our income doesn't seem to be growing at the same rate as the cost of living around us, does it? We worry about how we're going to make ends meet as it gets harder and harder to get by day after day. Other fears, like the fear of rejection, also come up inside us. In the cancel culture climate of our day, where unforgiveness is the enduring response to failure, Christians are more and more afraid of being out of step with the world around us. Because when they know what we think and believe, we're afraid we will be rejected and thrown in the garbage heap of unforgiveness. Maybe shame at past sin falls out that same fear of rejection. We're afraid that if someone knew what we were like, that they knew that we'd once been someone who was racist, or we were an alcoholic, or we were unfaithful in marriage, or we'd been an abuser or a thief, or we were someone who was promiscuous, then we'd be badly thought of, even in our church community. 
We're afraid that we might be written off because of things we've done in the past. Like Abram, we've all got fears, don't we? Many more than those four that I've talked about. And Abram's fear of death was so overwhelming, so totally encompassing that he finds a solution himself. Abram comes up with a deception which he hopes will save his skin. Look at verse 13. Say you are my sister, Sarai, so that I will be treated well because of you and my life will be spared. Now, there is some nuance. In chapter 20 of Genesis, it reveals that Sarai was Abraham's half-sister. Terah was also her father. Now, God outlaws those kind of marriages in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7, but at this time, it wasn't uncommon. Sarai may even be adopted. We can't be sure. But what we can be sure of is that Abraham is intent on telling a half-truth. He's asking Sarai not to disclose the fact that they are married. He doesn't want people to know that she's his wife so that things go well for him. In this change of status, he opens the possibility of an Egyptian coming to approach him to request her in marriage, something that he could then negotiate as her brother. Perhaps he hopes that any negotiation process would give him time to either put the Egyptian off or gather up their people and belongings and make a run for it. But even if we think of Abram's deception as favorably as possible, we still shouldn't be impressed with his response. He has acted in a way that is incompatible with real trust in God's promise. Despite Abram's earlier obedience in verse 6 and the act of worshipping God at the altar and making a public declaration of faith in verse 8, he doesn't trust that God is able to protect him and Sarai in Egypt. Abram doesn't need to wrest control. He doesn't need to find a solution to this problem himself, especially not one using deception. He might have had the very best of motives to spare his life, to keep Sarai safe, to provide a quick exit if they needed to. But his folly becomes abundantly clear in verse 15, when everything gets wildly out of hand. Pharaoh has heard how beautiful Sarai is, and he comes and takes her for himself. Now, Abram is richly rewarded, we see in verse 16, because of the favor that Sarai finds in Pharaoh's eyes. Sisters weren't given away for free. And Pharaoh gives Abram herds and servants. He becomes very wealthy. But despite the wealth and the status, the futility of Abram's attempts to manipulate his situation are shown for what they really are. They are weak and misguided. He has no power in this situation. Have you ever made a futile attempt to solve the situation which plagues your fears? The weight of the fear of death can be immense, can't it? Not every end to life is pleasant, and none of us wants prolonged pain and suffering. And so the temptation to play God gets very real for us, doesn't it? Or maybe as death looms, we shrink into denial, so afraid that we are unable to face the reality that death is coming to us all. They are real possibilities of where that fear might lead us. We see attempts to control the fear of financial difficulty reported to us every day. We know the fallout and the damage from fraud and theft and gambling addiction, don't we? 
Sometimes those three things are strongly interlinked, all three with each other. When we fail to trust that God will provide what we need, then maybe we start to justify taking the wrong action. Taking just a little bit here, it won't hurt, they'll never know, it'll be okay. Or we skim a small piece here, or maybe we have a little flutter so that we might win big and then that'll be all right. We'll have uh, a freedom from the fear of the need to provide because the bank account will be full. Now, for most of us, we probably haven't resorted to breaking the law in order to make our finances work. But sometimes we're tempted to work longer and longer hours, aren't we? The need to provide, to have more in the bank driving us to workaholism. Or sometimes that same fear makes us miserly instead of generous. The fear of finances can have a huge impact on us, can't it? How do we handle the fear of rejection? Well, I think one of the things we do is we clam up. When we're in an awkward situation where we need to share the good news of Jesus or his opinion or point, we say nothing. We never engage with others on controversial issues. We put our light underneath a basket. Or we can go to the other extreme. Instead of hiding away, we assimilate our thinking and our thoughts. We show how with it we are. We alter God's plain teaching and we shout about it on Facebook or from the rooftops that we're not like the others. We're not like those ones who prohibit. We settle for a standard other than God's and we dishonor the gospel. The same fear can give rise to both of those responses, can't it? Or the fear of shame at past sin, that can cause us to keep people at arm's length to refuse to build an authentic Christian community where we are known and where we know one another, where we are loved despite our brokenness and our flaws and our fallenness. The risk just feels too high for people to get to know what we were like. And so we never join a home group. We never share meals. We never hang around for the cup of tea after church. We come to church rather than be the church so that we are never found out. And as we do that, we end up isolated and alone without the whānau that we've been given to walk with us and support us and love us in our fallenness. Fear is a cruel master, isn't it? It drives us to the most ungodly and futile responses. Fear lulls us into thinking that by our actions we have control over the situation like Abram thought. He anticipated being in control of calling the shots. He anticipated having things well in hand. But he quickly learned that there was no man in Egypt who could stand up to the power of Pharaoh. There was no man in Egypt who could speak against the divine ruler. What the divine ruler of Egypt wants, the divine ruler of Egypt gets. But there was a true divine ruler who could stand up to Pharaoh. There was a God who could stand up to Pharaoh, a God who was faithful even when his people were not. All that Abram's scheming has done so far is jeopardize the very promise of God. Because he's failed to um, to trust that God would protect him and would keep him and Sarai safe, that God would build him into a mighty nation and curse those who cursed him, he's devised the scheme and lost control of the situation. And look how badly it's gone. He's now in a space that he can't free himself from. Sarai is now the wife of another man, the most powerful man in Egypt who has power over life and death, 
Abram's chances of fathering a child with her, of becoming a great nation, have just dwindled significantly. There is no way that he's going to endanger himself or Sarai by sleeping with Pharaoh's wife. That is just bad news. She is now totally out of bounds. And they are stuck in Egypt. Pharaoh is hardly going to let Sarai leave with Abram so that he can live in Canaan and inherit that land. Despite all of the wealth that Abram has accumulated and all of the influence and favorable treatment from Pharaoh, his powerlessness is absolutely obvious to us. And so is his lack of trust. His trust in the promise of God has dried up like a creek in the time of famine. But God is faithful. He exposes Abram's deceit. He brings it to light and he delivers Sarai. God is merciful to this poor woman. She has been so badly treated. To help bring the situation to light, in verse 17, God afflicts Pharaoh with diseases. He keeps his promise. He curses one who has treated Abram badly. Even though he didn't know he'd transgressed, God keeps his promise. And through this affliction, Pharaoh comes to Abram and learns the truth from him as he asks three questions. When Pharaoh learns of Abram's deceit, he expels them from Egypt. Verse 20, go. God delivers them so that the promises can be fulfilled. They are sent from the land of Egypt so that they can inherit Canaan, the land God promised. Sarai is returned to Abram as his wife so that one day she can bear him children and a great nation be born and all people be blessed through their family line. They leave with their wealth given by Pharaoh so that Abram's name and fame will continue to grow. Do you see how God is faithful to Abram? How he delivers him and works out all things that Abram was absolutely powerless to change because of his own deceit and scheming, which jeopardized the fulfillment of the promise of God. Our faith in God's faithfulness, his wonderful promises, can strengthen us to face our fears in a different way. We hear his promises, don't we? They're revealed to us in the Bible, but we are freed to be people who are doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Instead of acts of deception or resting control, we are called to put our faith and trust in God's promises, and then to take that trust and faith and to put it into action as we live differently to the world around us. As we do that, how do we face some of the fears that we've touched on today? How can we be people who don't just hear God's word, but who do it? who put our trust in his promises into action, into every single parts of our lives. Well, some of us are doing it already. We have people in our church community who are aware that they are walking towards death. Sometimes I have the tremendous privilege of walking with them. There is undoubtedly pain, sometimes physical, but certainly emotional, as we think of leaving our loved ones behind. There is suffering and heartache but I also see sometimes the strongest of faith being displayed to the glory of God. Lives that refuse to let go of hope and joy even in the difficult moments. Lives that refuse to rest control but live each day that is given. 
knowing that the difficulties of this life will all pale into insignificance when Jesus is seen face to face and he fulfills his promise. The promise that death has no sting, that our sin has been dealt with by his death, that our bodies will be renewed and restored in new resurrection bodies, living face to face with our God in everlasting joy. It's not an easy promise to hold on to when things get tough, but it is the most wonderful promise in a difficult time, isn't it? Or when the fear of financial difficulty sets in, remember the promise of God's gracious provision. Now, practically, the church is here to help. If you're really in a time of need, would you please come and see me? We are whānau. We are a community of blessing, of giving, of caring for one another. There is no judgment in our church community. We are a community of love and care and support. We are whānau. And if you know that you have more than enough and this fear still impacts you because sometimes it does, then I want to encourage you, brother or sister, be generous to others. Cultivate the joy of giving and see them people blessed. How do we handle the fear of rejection? Well, we need to tell ourselves the truth every single day that we are loved children of God, that we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that we have a church whānau, the body of Christ, who love us just as we are. We hold fast to knowing that we don't have to earn God's approval. He has loved us and given himself for us. The fear of shame at our past sin can be conquered by the promise that in Jesus Christ we are free. Remember the words we hear so often, there is joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. No one is righteous, not even one. I hope that's a comfort. We are all in the same boat, friends. When we sensitively share our failures and our struggles with another person, a brother or sister in Christ, we also rid them of their power as we praise the God who has redeemed us. When our fears rise up in us, and they will, they do, don't they? And sometimes they will be well-founded fears. We may be rejected. We may be called names. We may be shouted at or shut down for trusting the promises of God. But remember God's faithfulness to Abram and Sarai. His faithfulness is just the same to us. We've seen here, his promises will not fail. Even when we wrest control and fall in scheme, God will keep his promises to us. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us trust his wonderful promises and to live them out more and more as doers of the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be people who live lives that are informed by and trusting in your promises to us. Would you write them on our hearts? There are times where, just like Abram, our fears overwhelm us. And so we do what is human. We plan and we plot and we scheme our own solutions. We take control instead of trusting your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to believe your promises? 
and to live our lives in a way that shows it no matter what the cost. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening.